millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. And welcome to Whispers from the Heart, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm bearing my soul to them. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Welcome back, listeners, to the fifth and final part in this Whispers from the Heart series, which has been such a lovely collection of conversations to take part in. Uh, We've travelled from Ireland to America with lots of talk about wonderful Japanese animation in between as well. And today we're talking to a guest who traverses kind of two of perhaps the biggest names in animation in the world right now, both Pixar and Ghibli. And it feels like a, a real honour and such a, a nice cap at the end of this series to uh, have Mike Jones join us today. I mean, super exciting on my part because he wrote the English language versions of both The Wind Rises and The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. So this is the f- first chance we've had to really talk with somebody about scripting the English language versions of Ghibli's films. And it's not just that that we can get into because in the Western animation, in terms of pillars of storytelling, Pixar is a name that comes up so often. And Mike has been part of the senior creative Pixar team for so long. He's been part of the storytelling processes of Coco and the latest Incredibles and Toy Story 4. And he's kind of progressed now that He's got story and screenplay credits on Soul, which is the new Pixar film that's out on Disney Plus this December, and then also on Luca, which is next year's Pixar film. So great to really talk to someone who is like within this kind of dedicated animated feature film storytelling world that has such a personal connection to Ghibli. And it's great to just have a real writer's episode. Across this miniseries, we've had directors, animators, studio execs giving their take on how Ghibli has inspired them. And now we'll have an actual writer being able to take apart <laughs> Ghibli's films from a writer's perspective. So here is our conversation with Mike Jones. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Mike Jones, welcome to the Ghibliotech. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And, well, something that we wanted to start with, because... If we look at your credits, there are some some great different credits attached to your name there, and people might look ahead at what you're doing in the coming years and look back on what you've done already. And we'd we'd really love to know what your job actually is and what you've been doing on both Pixar films, Ghibli films um, over the last decade. And what is it that you do, Mike? Oh, sure. Um, well, with um... The Ghibli films, the screen, my uh, out, the screenwriting that I do outside of Pixar, and then the writing that I do inside of Pixar are almost three different jobs in a way, although they use the same brain space. Um, I was a, a screenwriter for um, many of the Hollywood studios for twenty plus years um, before Pixar brought me in to work on the very first version of uh, The Good Dinosaur, and uh, I just kind of stayed there. Um, jumping from project to project, from director to director, until uh, I finally uh, landed with um, Pete Docter, who had an idea for a film um, set in a place beyond space and time um, where souls are given their personality before they're given to Earth. And that's all he had. And so I worked with Pete on that idea for a good four years. And um, in there, within there, they asked me to come on board as their full-time uh, screenwriter, which they never had before. Uh, and so my job at Pixar is still that, it's still very much to sit with directors and explore their ideas and then eventually to start writing pages, whether that's treatments or whether that's actual script pages eventually. Um, but I also, another part of my job that I really love is I love just to sit with directors when they have a, just a seed of an idea. It's just blue sky, just an empty canvas. And I love um, talking with them and brainstorming with them. But also, I mean, you can sit around and brainstorm um, in any direction. But I particularly like to think about how can this be thought of as a movie? How can we start thinking of it as a movie? Um, How can we start applying a particular structure to it, whether that's three acts or four acts or five acts? Um, Because I think it, particularly with a lot of new directors of Pixar, it's really valuable to start thinking about structure. I, I think it's never too early to start thinking about it. Some people think that maybe it's a little inhibiting, but I, I actually don't. I find as long as you keep an open mind, you can jump you know, between structures. You can jump. You can apply all sorts of different imaginations to these ideas. And so I do that. That's my, that's my everyday job. And now with um, Studio Ghibli, the... Uh, it was John Lasseter who put, who asked me to um, do the English adaptation of The Wind Rises, uh, and I immediately said yes. Um, and then uh, I had such a good experience with Jeff Wexler on that. Jeff asked, asked me to do the tale of Princess Kaguya, um, and uh, which were just such completely different and such such completely different movies. Um, and such completely different ways of working. I can get into um, I can get into that too. Oh, we're we're going to get into that. Do not worry. <laughs> but I suppose to set things up to begin with, when that sort of job comes your way, what are you provided with? In in terms of you, you I guess the Japanese film is finished in some way, and then yeah. you're working. What are you working from? Do you speak Japanese? Have you done any translation work yourself, or how does it? turn into an English language screenplay? I, uh, I don't speak Japanese. Uh, they, for both projects, they give me a, um, a DVD, um, kind of an unadorned DVD of the movie with um, the subtitle below. 
And then I'm given a very fat document that's the exact English translation of everything that's said. And the difference between the subtitles on the film and the exact translation is sometimes very stark, like very, very different. They just don't have enough room below there, or I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like they just want to quickly get on to the next moment, so they want to try to truncate some of that. Uh, and so I felt, I always approached my job as I, um, it's, it's funny because many people don't want to watch the English adaptations of it because they feel like they might be losing something. When if you find a really good English adapter, they are always working from the original translation. And sometimes they are uh, making um, the English words that the actor is going to speak a little bit more true or more direct to what the exact translation is than what the subtitle is. And, um, and so that was, that was my, um, my task and but I'm juggling a lot of things there I am um, I'm trying to make it somewhat colloquial to an to English-speaking audience um, I'm I have in my head I want um, I want a kid to be able who is just maybe channel surfing to be able to stop on a studio Ghibli movie and just go oh I want to give this a try you know and if the subtitles for kids sometimes are a little bit, it's a little bit of a, um, you know, of a, a removal, you know. And so I'm thinking about um, how that actor can say those lines in a way that doesn't feel stilted or forced. Um, and which is sometimes difficult. And um, I'm also trying to match whatever I write to the lips of that particular character on screen. So what I'm doing is I'm writing and I'm acting it as I watch it, just to make sure the cadence is in time is in time with the lip movement, and um, which is hard. It takes forever. Oh my gosh, it just <laughs> takes forever. And, but it's really yeah. and so I've seen both The Wind Rises and um, Princess like over and over and over again. Granted, I saw them years ago when I was working on it, but um, it was just a constant rewind, write, act, feel it out, rewind. You know. And then you was also trying to find, particularly when maybe the character's head was turned, where I could find maybe some more moments of adding either more character um, definition, like some kind of colloquialism, or just to kind of help the audience um, understand what was going on. Sometimes there's a cultural separation, you know, particularly with um, with Princess. There was um, there was some things that we just needed to kind of explain. I wish I had an example because it was, but it was just so long ago. Um, and there was a couple of moments where I did, I was able to put in a couple of lines when the character's head was turned just as a way of conveying some information. Um, but, um, but man, it was, uh, it was hard. Yeah. Now that I think about it, it was, uh, it took forever. And do you, do you feel that the English language versions of films like these or other foreign language films, um, the, the treatment of them has changed compared to like the Kiki's delivery service dub that might have been made in the nineties and how yeah. well that is regarded and how much freedom they had at the time to just ad lib whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, with the wind rises, there was really no, um, there was a couple of moments. I mean, a couple of small moments where I had asked if I could just help explain a little bit of, uh, of what's going on. And they said, no, you don't, you don't touch Miyazaki's um, dialogue. And I completely um, respected that. And so, um, I think there was because, you know, John Lasseter was involved in, do you, maybe, you know, I know he was involved in Poco Rosso mm -hmm. and Spirited Away. Um, what were some of the other um, adaptations he was involved House Moving in? Castle. He was House Moving Castle, in, right, that's right. Ponyo had, mm -hmm. you know, quite a, an extensive you know, English language version, right. very, very Disney. And um, I think version. that... Pete Doctor did Ponyo, or else right. he did Howl Living Castle. That's right. Yeah. Well, this is what we're figuring out because often those credits are sometimes quite buried deep in the IMDb page. And what mm -hmm. does a director do? What does the, the the screenwriter do? Or the voice actors? What do they bring? That's what we're trying to figure mm -hmm. out with these interviews. And yeah. that already you're giving such a fascinating insight there, where we think of screenwriters bashing away at typewriters, you know, turning imagination into words on a page, but that is almost in a way closer to copywriting, isn't it? Where you have almost a stopwatch amount of time mm -hmm. to convey your meaning. 
It's mm-hmm. really fascinating. And I must say, you were handed two of the most culturally complicated Ghibli films to translate yeah. in for an English language audience. Yeah. Um, maybe we could talk a bit more specifically about the two now from what you can remember. The Wind Rises is this historical sweeping epic where you have not only um, the interwar years in Japan and Japan's relationship with Nazi Germany, you also have all of the technical dialogue about mm-hmm. how, how planes are put together. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what was your process behind that? I, for the, all the technical stuff, I needed to stay pretty true to what that exact translation was. I, I'm not an engineer, so I don't, I don't know. But what I did love about it was I loved um, his, um, his love for that. I mean, the, the Jiro's passion throughout that movie is, pure, is purely around the love of making um, machines that can fly gracefully through the air. So in my mind, everything that he, um, whenever he talked about it, um, he was filled with something. And then, of course, when he meets his um, his love, that's that's a different tale. But um, so it was it was less important to me to get some of the specs right, and more important to convey his like just utter passion for it. Like I think when he is that one moment when they're when they're when they're racing back after seeing after seeing like a wing strut, right? Um, and they've asked the um, they've asked the mechanics to break their lunch to open up the, um, the garage for them essentially to see it. And, um, they're, when they're racing back after seeing it, he is so filled with excitement and, and, um, wonder about a strut (laughs) that I found so wonderful that, um, I wanted to make sure that even in that just small little exchange, um, between he and his best friend that, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, and John Krasinski, um, I just wanted to, I wanted that to um, that to be conveyed, you know. Uh, and whenever, and a lot of it is also not in dialogue that I write. A lot of it is when he when he kind of goes inside of himself to see either um, the mechanics failing under stress or um, working under like the best circumstances. There's no dialogue; it's all visual at that point. So. Um, and, 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 and it should be, you know, uh, and then, but the, and I remember talking to Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the thing is when, when, when you get the actors in the recording studio and Jeff could speak to this as well, that it's even as much work as I have done in trying to match everything to the lips and also to convey hopefully to what that actor needs to say the actor brings something different to it. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt brought something very different to Jiro. And, um, and even in the difference then, it, be- it became harder for him to match what I wrote. And so and sometimes we had to kind of write on the fly. And Gary Rydstrom, who, um, you know, Academy Award-winning sound designer and yeah. fantastic guy, we worked very closely on um, that script together. Um, he uh, was the perfect person to deal with that, um, with that recording situation. And so we would just write in there, just make sure that, um, we gave the words cause, cause it's not easy for those actors because they are watching the monitor. And if you've ever seen, I don't know if you've ever seen how they record it, they're watching the monitor and there's a line that goes across the monitor and it's going to hit another line. And that's when the actor kind of has to start talking. And so not only it's act, not only is it acting, it's timing on their end too. And they're also watching the lips of the, of the um, animated um, character on screen and trying to match it. So it's not easy on their end either, you know. And did you ever feel like the weight of the work throughout all this process? Or were you able to separate them? Because The Wind Rises to me is, that is all of Miyazaki's career and passions rolled into one film. Yeah. And now it's your job to try and bring a lot of the Western world, a lot of those ideas that yeah. he's been thinking about for seven, seven decades. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I loved um, Porco Rosso. I, uh, I, wa- I watched that again last night with my 10-year-old and he was cackling through it. But, the, but his love for aviation um, and then to be given a film about aviation was, um, it, was it was hard to fathom. It was, it, and it was, uh, 
it was incredibly, I guess the thing is like, I'm also very, um, uh, I'm very used to working with directors, one-on-one with directors. And this was something different. This was something that I did in my, in my um, office at Pixar. And I didn't um, talk to Miyazaki at all. And I didn't talk to um, Takahata at all. Um, we, he came, Takahata came to the studio once and, um, and I met him, but, um, it was just kind of a brief handshake, a brief acknowledgement. And, and that was it. I didn't get to talk with him about the pages at all. Uh, and I, and, and, uh, so in that way, I was like, I kind of felt, I just, I don't know. I felt like I, I, I would have loved to have that one-on-one, um, with them at some point, but, um, so doing it without their, um, without any oversight from them necessarily, with a lot of oversight from the studio in terms of Jeff, but without their oversight, it, I felt a bit siloed and um, it made it all the more um, kind of nerve wracking because I didn't know if I was doing a good job. You know, um, I was kind of relying on Jeff to say like, is this okay? Is this okay? And Jeff was great. Jeff would say like, um, you know, tweak these, tweak this. And Jeff, Jeff speaks Japanese. So he would also mm-hmm. be very helpful in the translation. When we spoke to Jeff, he was very um, specific, really, about mm-hmm. his thoughts about what translation should be and how these versions, you know, what they should take, what they should amend, but almost a firm line of where they shouldn't cross into Americanization, Anglicization. And mm-hmm. I wonder, did he, did he have any of those in writing to you or set them in stone yeah. for you, these maxims for what you shouldn't do? Oh, yeah. He's very, very protective of, of Miyazaki's script. And, um, and quite rightly so. I mean, I will... Uh, as a, as a um, American screenwriter, I have um, in my, you know, bread inside of me a very particular way of how Americans convey emotion. And that is very different than um, how any other, cult, any other culture conveys emotion. And so I am, um, I'm at that strange crossroads of trying to, you know, write something that I feel James Kahn can deliver. James Kahn has a very particular way of, of, um, of conveying his emotion and um, having not cross over into Americanization. I, I'm also very aware of that, but I'm also aware that it, it does need to kind of dip in there. Otherwise it's going to, to anybody who listens to it, it's going to come across as, as I said before, stilted and forced and you don't believe it. And when, when the audience is not believing the movie they're watching, then you've lost them. You know, we're always quite aware of that at Pixar. Um, and, the way that we do that is to make sure that that character is speaking from an emotional place. So, and that was always, that was always a tricky situation. And I'll say also Frank Marshall was also very key to the, the wind rises translation as well. He was, I would say as Jeff was very protective of the script, Frank Marshall was um, also very uh, aware of what the actors um or, or what that English translation needed to do in terms of an American audience. Mm. So, um, and, and in the, in between there was found the sweet spot, which was my job. Yeah, that's, that's really <laughs> fascinating. Cause um, again, we're trying to fill out this sort of cast of characters behind these um, English language versions. Um, it's something that has been a thread throughout our entire podcast journey Mm. is how these films for many years were hard to find in Mm -hmm. the west and then there was suddenly this rush from the mid mid late 90s onwards Mm. into the 2000s where there have been different shepherds all the way through Um, i interviewed kathleen kennedy years ago of course she she was involved in ponyo etc because and then also the connection with frank marshall so hearing about his influence is fascinating what what elements were you bringing therefore bringing to the script in, this, in terms of the seesaw for the American mm-hmm. audience. Uh, could you speak to that other examples? Um, I think it was, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was kind of just that it was trying to find the way that actor is most comfortable delivering that line mm-hmm. um, in the time that we needed to. Um, and also finding a way that it didn't, it, it, it didn't, you know, go over that line to pure Americanization. And that was hard. You know, uh, sometimes you're able to kind of do it. Like, for instance, when we cast um, Werner Herzog as the spy, um, 
we, I, I, I wasn't there for that particular recording session. Um, but I'm sure then you, you can, they relied a lot on Werner to, um, to kind of, uh, trick out his dialogue a little bit to make it sound more like a German speaker than an American speaker. Right. So, um, uh, but yeah, it was, it was really that it was, because I I had watched and I and I couldn't give you any examples, but in, in the in the hundreds of um, animated films that are poorly dubbed, hmm. um, you're really just watching the animation and you're listening for information, so that you can kind of put the scenes together. But you're not in in some many of those movies, you're not emotionally connected to that character because they're really just kind of a a cipher for an idea. And that was, I was very aware of that. Like, I, I don't want, I didn't want to write a bunch of exposition for um, characters, particularly these actors, to say just to get us to the next scene, to help the audience understand what's happening. I wanted the audience to, um, to fall in love with these characters because then they're leaning in um, and then they're asking questions about what's happening next rather, rather than going like, oh, I'm just going to be told, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think some of those early, you know, some of those other, um, I'm trying to remember a couple that I watched. I remember watching going like, oh man, what the hell are they saying? Um, <laughs> it wasn't uh, studio movies. There was, I remember as a kid watching one about a unicorn. I can't remember what it was called, like a precious unicorn. And it was my sister and I watched it and we watched it and we couldn't figure out what was wrong with the movie, but we mm-hmm. loved it. I mean, it had fantastic animation. Somebody, somebody will, will email me and tell me what it is. It was about like a precious unicorn that was in danger of, of, of being kidnapped and, and killed in some way. But I remember watching it going like, something is weird about this. And we were little kids at the time, you know. Um, you know, and you're right. When my introduction to um, anime was, I grew up in South Texas. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. And I mean, it was very hard to watch any sort of art or independent film, much less um, animation. And so... I went to, I went, took two years at the University of North Texas, where I went to a class, one of my film classes, and it was a guest speaker had come in, and it was this guy who specialized in anime. And he presented us like a whole, uh, he, he actually, I think he based his entire um, lecture on Akira. And when he put Akira on screen, like I had not seen anything like that in all of my days, you know, I, and I was blown away, um, just with the amount of movement and propulsion they were able to get, um, in that story. And, um, I remember like his, that I don't remember his name, but he had this whole theory about why the animation is so good. And it's because in Japan, there's not enough, um, land to shoot on. So they have all of these, animators um, that are able to um, kind of make sets expansive and, hmm. um, and alive because there's not a lot of live action opportunity uh, in the country of Japan, which I was like, I don't know about that. First, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I did a pretty good job. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, we've, we've spoken a lot about uh, the wind rises and Miyazaki there, Mike, but I'd love to move on to the tale of the princess Kaguya, which yeah. Is, is, is a totally different film yeah. um, from a very different director. And The Wind Rises is, 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 is so precise and, and rich in detail in every way, in every frame. And Kaguya is a far more emotional, expressionistic piece, yeah. at least for me. Um, what were the differences between those two stories when you're having to adapt them? Uh, well, it was having, I think the biggest um, difference was it was having a character who was emotional. Um, you know, Jiro is emotional at times, but he really holds it in. I mean, I think his biggest um, moment of emotion is at the very, very end when he thanks Caproni for bringing him to that dream to see his deceased mm-hmm. wife. That's the one time where I feel like Jiro is able, kind of breaks down a little bit. With um, with the princess, like it was, uh, she was, it was wonderful to write because. Um, she was she she had so much to uh, she had so much to react against, and the the idea that she is growing up so fast that um, in this uh, kind of 
in this bubble, she is having a, a like accelerated childhood experience um, that her parents are very protective of her and then have big aspirations for her aspirations that then she doesn't go against um, this wonderful life inside this bubble that she's had. It was, uh, it was great. I loved writing that one. That one was, and I want to say that one was maybe, gosh, I don't know which one was easier or harder, but I think it was, I, I, I was always looking for the emotion in Jiro. And maybe that wouldn't have, maybe uh, that was the wrong way of looking at it, but I was always looking to find like, where is, where is Jiro being emotional? Um, I never had that question um, with the tale of Prince, the tale of Prince Kaguya. Kaguya, Kaguya, I'm always, do you pronounce oh, it? Oh, I go Kaguya, so Kaguya. I'm probably way off. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we can't possibly be, <laughs> we can't make a call on that. <laughs> We'd have to go all the way back to the source. But that's interesting you say that because my miss. So maybe my, my, my comprehension of it would have been that as a very Japanese folk tale, mm-hmm. that m- might be the harder one to write, but maybe it does have that emotional core to it. Um, and it, in a way, assumes that you already know the story enough so that there isn't much in the way of context or exposition required for you to then right. insert in the gaps. So maybe it is maybe it's an easier one to do. It was, I mean, it, it was certainly easier to find her kind of emotional art, but you're right in that it uh, needed, and I, and I'm trying to remember if there was, there were specific instances, because I know that I had a few conversations with Jeff about this, that what was happening to her in during, when the suitors were, were coming, mm-hmm. uh, there was some moments of that, that just needed a little bit more explanation for her, um, for uh, an English speaking or an American audience. And um, I think that we were able to find some, find some workarounds, but it wasn't very, wasn't very big. There's, there's a lot that um, you can gather from what's happening, you know? And I think that has, again, a lot to do with the fact that um, of what she is going through, you know? Um, uh, But it was, um, it wasn't, I remember it being, as hard, if not a little bit harder than The Wind Rises. Um, but because um, it was so wonderful to write for that character, it was um, in some ways a bit easier, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you, you you mentioned a word earlier, Mike, that's, uh, I know, one that can either uh, haunt or maybe make other screenwriters rejoice, and that is, that is structure. Yeah. And uh, Pixar, I know, is is well known for the rules of structure in yeah. their story. And I, I'd love to know how much you, you found those carrying over into Ghibli films or whether there is, there is there a real magic in those films that just means that they can work around everyone else's ideas of how it all works or is there no secret at all? Um, well, I mean, with the wind rises, it's um, if you asked me to, uh, kind of dissect the structure of that movie, it would be very hard. Um, uh, with, um, with the tale of Princess Kaguya, I feel like that it's, it's much more, um, it's a much more traditional kind of structured movie. Um, um, I mean, it's with, with these, with these two movies that I did, like I didn't put on my structure hat because it's already there in a way. And um, I'm kind of just trying to get scene by scene. Um, so I didn't really think a whole lot about structure. There's nothing I could do about it, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, like I, like I said before, and, and, and you know, I think it's interesting because um, Takahata took so long to make his movie. Um, could, do you guys know the, the um, like, how long Wind Rises took versus how long Princess took? Well, Princess took was thirteen years between, years, right. and, and then Wind Rises was four years. or something. Much right? quicker, yeah. Much quicker, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's funny, like that. The Wind Rises. I, I I feel like that with um with Takahata after with taking thirteen years at Pixar, uh, I feel like when we talk about structure, the films ultimately um fall into that structure after we work and work and work them so hard. Like the iterative process at Pixar where we are writing, drawing, watching, writing, drawing, watching. I feel like sometimes just maybe it's in the studio's DNA 
the film will go into a traditional three-act structure, which sometimes is infuriating for us. <laughs> and sometimes like, well, great, like, it, you know, the, it, it's fine. I, I, I believe that, um, and this is another conversation, I believe that we need to, particularly for American audiences, we need to start thinking of different form, different, different kinds of structure. Because I believe the audience even unconsciously kind of knows about, you know, um, the 10 page inciting incident, the act two, act one break, the midpoint, they kind of know it's coming. And um, they can tell when the action is rising or falling, whether it's, um, whether it's plot action or emotion or character emotion. And when the audience is able to kind of predict what's happening, then you're kind of losing them, you know, they're not surprised by anything. And um, they're kind of along for the ride. And studio, um, studio Ghibli movies, they never, I never um, know which way they're going, which is wonderful for me, you know. I mean, I'd totally forgotten. Um, Coco Rosa's third act is really just one long fight. <laughs> it's just one long, like, it's a, it's a, it's a dogfight in the air. And then they both said, decide, well, we're, we're, we're both equally matched in the air. Let's go fist fight. <laughs> and they fist fight and, like, knee, level, knee uh, high water. And my young, my 10-year-old was just cackling, like, because everybody was so nice to each other, <laughs> too, you know. Even the two guys fighting were, like, nice to each other. And uh, it was it's just something you don't see, just something you don't you don't expect. So um, that's probably a long way of answering your question. But I, I feel like whenever um, and I would also say um, Spirit Away also has a very particular and very different kind of structure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, what you what you kind of, what I kind of think sometimes about structure is that I want there to be at different at, at the different stages of the movie, you to feel like you're watching a different movie, but not that but you're watching the same one in a way like the movie needs to make a dr drastic change. Um, and I feel like that in spirit away, I feel that absolutely, you know, there's, there's maybe two or three hard turns for her um, in her journey that she's in that. And she jumps from almost movie to movie, but because she's so wonderful and her character is so winning, you're kind of along the ride with her. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if, if there's one, particular structure about studio uh about ghibli movies it's that that character you're always following that character um no matter where they go and like whispers for the heart's different um i love that movie um but that but i love it because that character is so winning too right um i like i and, and i love that that is so completely different from spirit away but the character is actually kind of similar kind of willful stubborn artistic you know and i and i love like because i really recently watched it again i'm sorry i'm rambling go ahead but i recently watched it again but like there's they both of those girls have a kind of similar kind of introduction into um into the supernatural or or the other world right i found like i mean obviously um in whispers from the heart she kind of willfully goes there um, following the cat, but there's something about the way that is shot that's very similar. I felt to um, um, to Spirit Away, Spirit Away's kind of journey, and um, it's it. There's some there's some kind of wonderful, tight, almost tense shots, uh, and I just remember watching it going like, "This is this is the same girl in Spirit Away. This is the same way she kind of turns a corner and finds herself in a completely different world." I loved it. Oh, man. This is why talking to all these people with different perspectives and insights into the films that can unlock new readings for us, because what Jake and I in the past had talked about how the storytelling in Miyazaki's movies are a bit strange. Mm -hmm. um, the way I'd always thought about it was um, one example people use for a Hollywood film that breaks the three-act structure is Hitchcock's North by Northwest, where the lowest mm. point, which is usually the point before the third act, in that movie happens two minutes before the end of the film, when they're mm. hanging off um, yeah. Mount Rushmore, and then it's it's finished. Yeah. And it's the same with Miyazaki movies, where the third act of, of that film may be just a single line or a single reveal, or Spirited Away has the that big question of, you've got to figure out which of these pigs are your parents, but actually, no, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Same with um, House Moving Castle, where everything just seems to wrap itself up mm -hmm. in the final scene. Um, and, I, and we've said that 
maybe that feeds into or that comes out of Miyazaki's quite unique process to his films where he writes them. Well, he he does these amazing, I don't know if you've seen these, Mike, but he does these amazing mm. illustrated or annotated storyboards where they're very mm. detailed storyboards for each shot with the script along the side and he mm. delivers them in batches to the animators. Mm. Mm-hmm. So often he would have finished the first couple of acts, let's call them, before mm-hmm. figuring out the ending. Ah, and see. sometimes yeah. that can come feed in all the way to the final line. Whisper of the Heart, he hadn't decided where, how to finish it and just thought, I'll have them say, let's get married, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> and some, some viewers think, well, that's a weird random thing for a teenager to say. Yeah. <laughs> but if you follow the emotion of the characters, it feels so appropriate. That's what a, a teenager in the flush of first love might do. That's true, that. yeah. So yeah. often maybe locating us in the emotion of the characters might be the best way of overcoming the strange yeah. structure. It takes, you know, and it takes also a real discipline, um, particularly if you put stuff into production um, and you don't know where you, you don't, you might not have a firm grip of what your third actor end is. Um, you have to really be tracking that in your head. And um, I mean, that's uh, the, you know, the, the, it's what's difficult at Pixar is that we will put sometimes the, um, the very first uh, sequence of the movie um, and to uh, be the last thing in production. It's because like we will typically have, we'll, we'll write the introduction to the character and then we'll start writing um, the movie from that point on. But what inve- inevitably happens is that that character changes as you write and then, um, or that character decides to do something different um, Particularly if you find a character that is really speaking to you, that is, that's almost, um, you almost don't have to work hard because you've really defined it. And that character starts walking on their own and speaking on their own. And suddenly they're doing kind of wonderful things. And maybe they don't want to go down that, um, you know, outline plot point number 12. They want to take a left turn. And then that's, and in order to make that work sometimes, you then have to go back to the first sequence and start seeding some of that behavior. Um, or adding some of those character differences. And, I mean, it happens on every uh, Pixar movie I've worked on that the first, first or and second sometimes sequences are just delayed um, because they keep changing. They really just keep changing. Also, we just sometimes put way too much in that first sequence when we realize we don't need so much. You know, like and I feel like Ghibli movies, particularly Miyazaki movies. He might, he might already know exactly how much to give us in terms of that character. Um, and he gives it, to, and the, the, the way to hear you speak about it makes complete sense. He kind of, he kind of gives it to you and then um, he kind of writes that story. And then you're right, like so many things are just kind of quickly wrapped up at the end. And sometimes I feel it, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think like, well, that was kind of wonderful. Like with um, Whispers from the Heart, like, I thought it was kind of wonderful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and when it, and it ends like so abruptly, like it's the shot of, um, isn't it the shot of the cars on the, the road and they're in the top part of the frame. And it's just, you don't even know the movie's ended and a car goes across it. And then the scroll starts, you go, Oh shit, I guess the movie, <laughs> you know? but like it, it, some parts you might go like, Oh man, that's kind of weird. I didn't, I was like, wow, this that's great. He kind of makes you reckon with the ending um, very quickly, and um, there's a real um, there's a real courage to that yeah. that I envy. <laughs> and there's an example that I'd, maybe you'd be able to speak to. Um, famously, he changed the last line of "The Wind Rises" on mm. the fly, right at the end of the process. You know, the final line a character responds to. If, it's, if this was a Pixar movie, it would be like something you'd be really breaking down and talking about right. for years and wrestling over, perhaps. Whereas it's the line where um, it's Naoko in the dream and she says, yeah. either come to me or yeah. live. And or live, you must live, she, right. so he changes it to live, meaning go on and do your great work rather right. than come and see me in the afterlife, which is like a huge change in potential right. character direction. Um, right. And then you get that on your desk and there's that yeah. ending there for you to translate. I don't know if. How, how when you reached that you know part of the translation did it even resonate for you? Hold on, well, let's see. Um, 
you know, I was going to say, say, Michael, that uh, actually Woody just decided to go back to Buzz, and uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a whole different thing. A whole different thing. Um, I don't know if you know, if you have this um, the Art of the Wind Rises book. Um, what's interesting is that I they they sent it to me and I loved it, but then I noticed they published the script in it, the English um, uh, English ad- adapted script, and they also published inside some of these lines the alt lines. Uh-huh. So, like, you know, Hanjo, for instance, uh, he says at some point, "A flying door." Now I've seen it all. They'll never, they'll never stop the fire. Now Tokyo's finished. Right after, right after the earthquake, obviously, right? I put in an alt, and we do this a lot. Um, wow. We 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 do this a lot on all animated movies, actually. The alt was a flying door. Don't see that every day. They'll never stop the fire now. Tokyo's finished. Um, it's like a subtle change. And uh, what we put in is we threw in a lot of alts and we recorded, I think that we recorded them all. And sometimes, but there was one that's fantastic. Hold on, let me, sh- let me uh, that, that just shows you exactly how different, I thought it was here. Oh, here it is. I marked it. Okay, so... There is one, uh, this is when, um, you know, Kurokawa is looking, I think, at some of Jiro's work. And he goes, the, the, the first line was, Meh, it's perfect, right? Which is, I think, how they recorded it in The Wind Rises. The alt that we gave them is that he kind of holds back and he goes, it's good. You know, he kind of like, he, he doesn't want to admit that it's perfect. And so, and those are small little instances where, uh, the screenwriter can just let's maybe give this a try just to see, and it's it's a little bit of a character change, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with that last line, let's. I, I think that it was. You're right. It was. You must live, darling. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you're you're saying it because I never knew this. It used to be, um, come to me. So yeah, in Japanese, the word kite is mm. come. Or like the mm. imperative of come, and then with ikite, with the just one extra syllable on the front, it changes it to um, live, oh. which is where the um, the Kurosawa film Ikiru comes from. Um, right. But, Let me, uh, uh, and I, I think wanna... he even changed it in the voice record because they were matching it to the same mouth movement. Oh, really? And that's what I find yeah. wild is that you're there having to treat almost as you know biblical text this screenplay that Miyazaki right. was still just you know, jamming on all the way through <laughs> to the final record. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying, because of the, I wanted just to check uh, what the literal translation was that I got. And yeah, it was, you must live, uh, darling, you must live. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was still oh, wow. Yeah. I, I find that stuff so fascinating. Really. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's in it and it's, because you know it's if we were shooting a a a live action movie everything is kind of set already Mm -hmm. and um what you get is what you get unless you're going to go do research reshoots which you often do um but on an animated movie everything is built everything is manufactured every decision to lift an eyebrow one way or another is um debated and discussed intently and you it's a remarkable to see how small little changes um, affect uh, that affect the trajectory of any particular sequence one way or another, um, particularly of character. And that's why, like, if you if we've done our job, um, we have created a really compelling character that into the second act, when you start making those small minute changes, the audience really feels it, right? Um, so yeah, I was like, that's because come to me is like. Come to me is a really different. Come to me is almost you can read it as um, your ten years are over. Yeah. Um, it's now come time to come to me. It's now time to end it. You know, which wow is. And it was that change of heart to want a more positive ending rather than right. something that ultimately all that work you did ends with you going off into the afterlife or the dream world or whatever it is, and that's right. it. Yeah. It's yeah, um, the, the, the whims of geniuses, I suppose. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Mike, I'm imagining you doing 
your couple of years work on these two films and then going back into the normal world of Pixar and telling them that you're tearing up the 22 point structure and you're just going to improvise it and you're going to be changing lines on the day of the final record. Um, did, did you find that these working so closely with a, a text like this influence your work that's come after it? You know, I think it gave me, I, uh, before I was um, a writer for animated movies, I was a live action writer. I, and a lot of my writing comes from um, a sense of holding back. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't believe characters really say how they feel. I think they, you can see how they feel and they act how they feel, but oftentimes they don't quite say how they feel. And if they do, I'm always suspicious of it. <laughs> Because growing up in South Texas, particularly as a um, you know a, 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 a male in South Texas, you are you don't emote, you don't um, wear your emotions, you you keep everything close to the chest, and that's just the way that I studied um, how a character um, emotes, and so um, all of my writing was 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 from that perspective. That's also um, kind of a very uh, Japanese way of, of, of um, conveying emotion as well. Um, they share some similarities, particularly in like Grape of the Fireflies. Um, there's, it's throughout that movie, this, this constant holding back of emotion, particularly through the main character, but also in characters that they meet on the street. You know, I remember when, she's, when she drops, I think it's the apples, and she's picking them up and then she looks up and some guy on a bike is there and he's looking down at her and he's not saying anything. And I mean, they're in the, they're in the middle of just death. And she looks up at him and she kind of quickly um, backs away. And he just kind of, through his actions, um, you kind of get where he's at. And I love that. And so I think at Pixar, uh, at Pixar it's particularly, um, I think on Soul, um, it gave me more uh, courage to stay quiet, if that makes sense. Um, to stay sometimes motionless and to um, maybe let the audience project a little bit about what they believe the character is feeling at the time, rather than the character saying what they're feeling. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, it really does. And um, I, I'm not sure how much you can talk about Luca, but just from the little stills that we have seen, it seems like that from a stylistic perspective, I'm not sure how much influence you have on that. There, There is a, a bit of a diversion maybe happening with a, a, a look for that film. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, lo- that, that film looks amazing. It looks incredible. Um, it is, uh, and Enrico... Uh, Casarosa is one, I think one of his favorite movies is Porco Rosso, obviously, you know, Italian. He, he was the one who said like, have you seen Porco Rosso? And I go, no. And he goes, oh man, you got to see that. And I, I was like, I, how did I miss this one? Um, yeah, it is a very particular, very wonderful, uh, jubilant style to it. Um, and I can't say a whole lot about it, but you know, that, that one still that they've released in a little bit, they've talked about, about kind of two boys who um, find each other and become best friends. There's something so particularly wonderful um, about the way Enrico has imagined um, how that could happen uh, between these two boys who also have this secret, you know? Uh, So it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be really stunning. I can't wait for people to see it. I mean, it's yes, you're right. It's it's a little bit of a different movie. I will also say Soul is very different from most Pixar movies. So, from Soul is, uh, um, you know, Soul is uh, kind of pondering heavier questions of what does it mean to live a meaningful life, and um, you know, we don't know the answer to it, but we had to give some sort of um, some sort of resolution to that movie, uh, and it was. It, it, it was wonderful to go through and it was also incredibly challenging. Yeah. Well, and it's been five years since the last time that Pixar sent people into like existential yeah. mental, emotional dread with inside out. So it's yeah. just time to dig, dig that up again and oh, yeah. uh, throw, yeah. <laughs> throw, in, throw people into that. Yeah. Yeah. I like, they announced that they were, um, 
a little golden book of soul is coming out, you know, and I was like, what is that book? And I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Existential dread for the, for the toddler set. So the very like genesis of this podcast was me recommending some of my favorite films to Jake. And so whenever we do interview people, we love to, to ask them what the one thing they would, in, uh, you know, they would recommend us and our listeners to go and, watch and this could be animation this could be something that turned you on to screenwriting way back when if there's one thing we should go and watch what would you recommend oh gosh that's a hard one (laughs) well you know i whenever i whenever i'm asked that i always fall back on the films that made me want to write um and i think that there were i'm going to give you two of them and you might have seen them both um i loved uh tender mercies which is a um, Bruce Bareford directed it that has uh, Robert Duvall and Horton Foote um, the great American playwright uh, wrote the screenplay for it and it is uh, a, it's, it stunned me when I watched it I, I saw my family in it, I saw where I grew up um, and it was incredibly powerful and emotional for me in a way that um, in a way that dialogue like explicit expositional dialogue can't do you know, it's kind of what I was saying before. I, there's something held back in that movie that you feel at the forefront so much. And the other movie that just blew me away um, was Midnight Cowboy, uh, John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, um, written by Waldo Salt from uh, James Leo Hurley's book. And uh, it's, as a adaptation, um, it's, it's stunning how similar the movie is to the book. They are almost a mirror of each other. And again, like it, they, Tender Mercies and Midnight Cowboy kind of share a kind of uh, a cadence and, um, but they also share a deep love that characters find between each other and that I'm really affected by. And I always try to find in my work. Um, so yeah, those aren't, those aren't animated movies. No, that's absolutely <laughs> that's perfect. You know, that's something, you know, we may watch these animated films that Ghibli made, but, you know, Miyazaki's frame of reference, Sisatakata's frame of reference spills out in all directions. Yeah. So whatever, you know, wherever we go, we'll, we'll take those recommendations as they come. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you to Mike Jones for talking with us for this episode. I must say, Jake and Steph, it was so exciting when you're talking with the person who wrote the script for a film, when they they, they roll back in their office chair and pull off the shelf the book with the script in to, to refer to what they wrote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, imagine if you're just sitting at your remote desk every day and you just need some uh, affirmment in your life and your achievements and you can just look to the side and grab that. <laughs> Um, wow uh, what an amazing conversation and what an end to this series uh it's been so lovely not just to talk to our guests but obviously to talk to you two as well um like this has been such a lovely project for us and i and i'm sure that we would certainly love to get more names from the world of animation to come and join the show and tell us about their relationships with ghibli as well yeah talking about ghibli is one of our favorite things to do and it seems that other people enjoy doing it as well so what a fantastic series this has been and also it's given us a huge watch list for for the rest of the year we talked about steven universe in the previous episode we had the cartoon saloon the work of mamoru hosoda the science saru and now uh, as well we can look forward to watching soul at the end of the year as well so that might be the end of this miniseries, but that's not all from us for this year. We still have the big Ghibliotech Christmas party episode to come. So stay tuned for that in December. There will be a raffle. <laughs> yes, there will be a raffle. There's some prizes to be had. So make sure you stay tuned and listen in. And if you want to follow us on our socials to stay up to date with that, you can find us at Ghibliotech on Twitter, or you can email us at ghibli at little.studios.com yes there are some very very good prizes uh that we'll be dishing out on that episode and we'll be telling you all about how you can take part on our social media account so make sure you follow us or you can follow us individually you can follow michael at michael j leader you can follow steph at underscore steph watts and you can follow jake at jake h cunningham 
one big final thank you from us at Ghibliotech to all our guests, to all you listeners and to everybody who's helped set up these conversations. Thank you for listening. You'll hear from us again very soon. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.